music. You can open in your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. As we transition into Thanksgiving week, it's hard to believe Thanksgiving is here already, but it is. I want to give you one word to help you to be thankful, to kind of get you prepared and ready for this week and this holiday and really everyday life where we are to live lives of gratitude. And we're going to be in Titus chapter 2 where uh, we will see what that one word is that will stoke our passion for the Lord, that will remind us that He is indeed awesome. Titus chapter 2 verse 11. I'd like to ask you this morning if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. The Bible says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we echo the song we just heard. Our God is awesome. What a privilege to know you. What a privilege to gather together with this family of faith to worship you, Lord, to ascribe to you the worth that is due your name. And Lord, you are the center of attention. You are the reason that we're here. And Lord, we come with open hearts, Lord, prepared to surrender all, prepared to be changed by you, prepared to encounter you as your word goes forth. So, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit you'd open the eyes of our hearts and we would see the truths of Scripture. Lord, give us the grace to respond, incline our hearts to to obey what we see so that we can live lives that honor and glorify you. We love you today. We praise you. We are grateful today for the hope of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead. And because of that, any sinner who places their faith in Christ can be born again. That's good news, Lord, and we are here to celebrate that good news. And we lift this time up to you, and we place it in your hands. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The book of Titus is, in actuality, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a protege of his named Titus. And Paul had placed Titus in a position of leadership, the the pastor of the church in Crete. And as Paul understands what's going on in that church and wants to encourage Titus, he writes this letter, this epistle, to help him to understand some things about leadership and to help him to persevere uh, in his pastorate at that church. And as he writes to Titus about pastoring, uh, he begins to share some things about our salvation and all that God has done for us. He begins to celebrate the, the goodness of God in our lives. And, and, and from this text and from really the entire witness of Scripture, there's a word 
that emerges. And I think if you and I will grasp hold of this word, it will help us this Thanksgiving and in our day-to-day lives to be more grateful. But before I give you that word, I want to just discuss with you three spiritual realities that sort of set the table for us uh, to receive that word and to understand that word all the more. Three spiritual realities. You can follow along with me there in your notes. They come from our text this morning. Here's the first spiritual reality that I want you to, to understand and grasp hold of today. God has done something for us. God has done something for us. When we celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are celebrating the reality that God has done something for us. It says there in verse 11 that, that the Lord has brought salvation for all people. Now, that verse reminds us of a couple of things. First of all, this verse speaks of rescue. Notice the word there in verse 11, salvation. Salvation, that is salvation from destruction. He's speaking there of God's rescue from the penalty that our sins deserve. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches there is none righteous, no, not one. And the Bible says very clearly in Romans 6.23 that the wages, the, 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 the due, the recompense for our sin is death. You and I deserve death. We deserve punishment. We deserve God's wrath. Uh, but God loves us and doesn't want us to suffer his wrath, doesn't want us to be separated from him in this life and in eternity. And so God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to come and rescue us. And the question becomes, how did Jesus rescue us? Well, look what it says down in verse 14. It says, our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us. How did Jesus rescue us? He rescued us by giving his life in our place. Jesus Christ went to the cross and he went to that cross to take our sin upon himself. He became sin for us and on the cross he took the punishment, the wrath of God that you and I deserve. Isaiah 53, 6 prophetically looked at this crucifixion of Jesus Christ when it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him, upon Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ went to the cross to take our punishment for us. And so this verse speaks of salvation, save, saving from our, from our sins, saving from the, the penalty our sins deserve. This verse speaks of rescue. Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to rescue you from certain destruction in that awful place called hell. Not only does this verse speak of rescue, this verse speaks of availability. Availability. Look what it says there in verse 11. It says, bringing salvation for all people. All people. That does not mean that everyone is saved. It's not speak of Uh, universal salvation. This means that salvation is available for all people. Anyone that places their faith in Jesus Christ, turns from their sins, they can experience the blessings of salvation. It's available if they will but turn to Christ. That's what this verse means. He's, He's brought salvation for all people. And so the reality is this, Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. As the Bible says, not for our sins only, but those of the whole world. That means that you and I can go anywhere on this planet. We can meet anybody 
on any street or in any city or in any village, and we can look them in the eyes and say on the authority of Scripture, God loves you. And if you will turn to Jesus Christ, if you will place your faith in Him, He will save you, He will forgive you, He will redeem you, you will be born again, you will have hope, peace, promise, fulfillment, purpose, meaning in this life if you turn to Christ. It's available, right? So we have this wonderful confidence that wherever we go, we can share that message of of good news that is available for all people. And so this, this verse reminds us, these verses remind us that God has done something for us. That's the gospel. Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, according to the scriptures. And so Jesus Christ came to defeat our two greatest enemies, sin when he died on the cross for our sins and death when he rose from the grave and he can give us the the hope of eternal life. So the first spiritual reality I want you to grasp hold of is this, God has done something for us. Got that? Now here's the second spiritual reality I want you to see. God is doing something in us. If you are God's child, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can know that God is doing something in you. He is still working on you, as the old song says. Now look what it says in verse 11. It says, this salvation has appeared, verse 11. That that word appeared is a simple past tense verb. That's, That's past tense. It speaks of things God has done for us. But then look what it says in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That word training there is a present tense participle, which means this is a reality happening every day in our lives right now. So so God has done something for us in the past, but right now every day, present tense, God is doing something in us. And what is he doing? Well, the word that Paul uses in writing to Titus is the word training. God God is... teaching us some things. Now, here's the question. What is God teaching us? As as believers in Christ, as those who are born again, what is God teaching us every day? Well, first of all, God is teaching us to renounce. To renounce. Look what it says in verse 12. Training us to renounce what? Ungodliness and, and worldly passions. What is this word renounce means. It means that God teaches us that those things that we used to hang on to and used to be involved in are not commensurate with the Christian life. We are brand new people in Jesus. And and because of that, because God has made us brand new, some of the old things will lose their grip, lose their hold on us. And so God is actively working in my life. He's actively working in your life to teach you to renounce those things that are part of the old you, to, to renounce ungodliness and worldliness, to show you the, the danger and destructive nature of those things so you will let them go and go in a new God-honoring direction. He's teaching you to renounce. And I know he's doing this in my life. One way I know that is, is things that used to not bother me bother me a lot now. I don't know, parents, if you've had this experience you're at a, a movie that you remember fondly from when you were a child, and, and you want to show your kids that movie because you remember it so fondly. You know, it was a funny movie or, or adventurous movie, 
And so you get your kids together and you put it on and you have to turn it off quickly because you're shocked at the language. I've had that experience. I don't know about you, I've had that experience. And I think, I think about the 80s when I was watching these movies. Why did it not bother me then? You know what God's been doing? He's been teaching me to renounce. He's been teaching me those things are not commensurate with the Christian life. That I ought to set those things aside. And and now I'm I'm more sensitive to those realities. Why? Because God has been working in my life. And so God is teaching us to renounce. Secondly, God is teaching us to live. Look what it says back in verse 12. Training us, it says, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a certain way. What? Self-controlled upright, godly lives in the present age. So not only is God saying, hey, let go of those worldly, ungodly things that were part of your old life, but embrace some new realities now that you are born again. Now that you are a new creation in Christ, it ought to change the way that you live. Why? Because Jesus makes a difference. And and, and what I see God doing in my life, and I know what God is doing in your life based upon this verse, is God is teaching you, he's teaching me to live godly lives. We're embracing the right things. We're embracing wisdom and self-control. We're uh, embracing righteousness. We're, We're pursuing godliness in the present age. Hey, by the way, I believe that one thing the church has struggled with through the years is an inadequate view of holiness. And, and, and the, the view of holiness that we have bought into is that holiness is, is the things that you don't do. Or you're holy when there are certain things you don't do. How do you know you're holy? Well, I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I don't do this, and I don't do that. That's hol- No, holiness is not only saying no to the wrong things. Holiness is embracing the right things. It's living a positive, godly Christian life, exhibiting Christian character in your family and in your workplace and, and in, among your friends. That's what holiness is. And so God is teaching us to say no to the wrong stuff, and he's working in us so that we will say yes to the right things, right? But not only is God teaching us to renounce and to live, third, God is teaching us to expect. Look what he says there in verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so God is teaching us not only to shirk the, the ungodly things out there and to embrace the righteous things out there, but to do all of this with a sense of expectation. We are waiting for, he says, the blessed hope. What? The appearing, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so we are being taught by God every day that, listen, this world is not our home. Certainly, there's something better out there than this. Amen? And the, the, the reality is there is something better out there. It's called heaven, and that will commence when Jesus comes back to get us. And so as we say no to the wrong things and yes to the right things, we always have within us this, this overflowing sense of expectation, of hope, of, of longing, of, of angst, waiting for Jesus Christ to come back and take us to heaven and set everything right. I'm ready for that day. How about you? 
And, the, and, and Jesus is, is teaching us, the Lord is teaching us to live with that sense of hope and expectancy. If you are walking with God, God is working in you. And he, listen, he's teaching you that the things of this earth need to grow strangely dim as you focus upon the return of Christ. And so, God is doing something in us. He's He's teaching us to renounce, to live, to expect. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that is happening in your life, whether you discern it or not, that is happening in your life right now. If you are a follower of Christ, you should be able to look back over the past five years of your life and say, God has changed me. Not be, may not be discernible on a daily basis, but I'm telling you if, you, if you'll stop and look back, you will see the difference that God is making in your life as he teaches you. And so there are two spiritual realities we've discussed thus far. God has done something for us, and God is doing something in us. But there's one final reality I want you to see before I share with you that word. That word is going to help you to have a better thanksgiving. And the third reality is this. God desires to do something through us. He's done something for us, doing something in us. And he desires to do something through us. Look what it says in verse 14. It says, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So Jesus is gathering together uh, a people. And, and here's what he wants for this people he's gathering together. That they are zealous for good works. God desires that you and I as followers of Christ be zealous, enthused, passionate about good works. You know why? Because God wants to do something through you. Now, this phrase, good works, is emphasized in the book of Titus. It's, a, it's one of the major themes of this book. For example, look what it says in chapter 1, verse 16. He's speaking of those who are professing Christ, but their life doesn't line up with their profession. He says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So he's saying there's a certain group of people that are in and among your church, Titus, and they're not the real deal. They're hypocrites. They're just, they're just professing the right thing, but their lives don't line up with their profession. They are unfit to even do a good work. They're, they're not a, a channel that God can work through. Why? Because they're not redeemed. And so he mentions there, they are not fit for good works. Then look what he says in chapter 2, verse 7. Speaking to younger men in the church, he says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of what? Good works. Be a model of good works. Look what it says in chapter 2, verse 14. He's purifying for himself a people who are zealous for good works. Look what it says over in chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them, the people in your church, to be submissive to, be, to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Do you see a theme developing here? Look what it says over in chapter 3, verse 8. It says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And then look what it says in chapter 3, verse 14, if you're not convinced yet. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works 
so as to help in cases of urgent need. And so the theme of Titus is this. God has done something for you. He's, he's doing something in you, and he wants to do something through you. He wants you to be zealous for good works, which leads to this question. What in the world are good works? Good question, right? And I had a really good time in my study last week tracking the answer to this question down. I began to look at different times in the Bible that the the phrase good works is used. And I believe I came up with a a definition that is is, um, maybe not exhaustive, but it gives us a good starting place to understand what good works are. Here's the definition that I came up with. Helping others, bearing fruit, and making disciples for the glory of God. That's what good works are. Helping others, bearing fruit, and making disciples for the glory of God. Now, let me show you where I got that definition from. I want to just break it down for you very quickly. The first part of that definition is helping others. Look what it says in Titus 3, verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help in cases of urgent need. It's pretty simple, right? Good works, a part of good works is helping those that have needs in their lives. Helping others. The same idea is found in 1 Timothy. Look over in 1 Timothy, which is two books before Titus. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 18, he's given Timothy, another pastor, young pastor, to, to, he's given him instructions as to how to encourage the, those in the church who were rich. He says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works. And then look what he says next. To be generous and ready to share. And so good works here are defined as being generous to others, sharing with those in need. So the Bible is very clear that good works begin with helping others. Or a part of good works it, it comes when we help others. Secondly, good works is when it happens when we bear fruit. Back in, looking back in Titus 2 with me. Titus 2. I'm sorry, sorry Titus 3 verse 14. He says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So if you are living out good works, you are being fruitful, not unfruitful. And so we learn from that that good works is when you are bearing fruit. Colossians bears this out when Paul is praying for the uh, believers in Colossae. Listen to how he prays for them in Colossians chapter 1. Verse 9, Paul writes, So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. And so when we bear fruit, when God begins to produce Christian character and virtue through our lives, that is a good work. That's part of what it means to to live out good works. And so, what are good works? Helping others, bearing fruit, and making disciples. We cannot claim to be people who are zealous for good works. Listen, if we are not involved in the most important work Jesus left for his church to do, and that is make disciples. You say, wait, are are, are good works, is that really making disciples? Is is that really a good work? Well, look with me over in John chapter 4. I'm going to show you this. This comes from an interaction Jesus has with his disciples after Jesus shares with the woman at the well in Samaria. 
Look at this interesting conversation in John chapter 4, verse 31. John chapter 4, verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food. He's not talking about about literal food. He's talking about spiritual food. He says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Watch this. And to accomplish his work. Do you not say? There yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for, for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, you have entered into their labor. So Jesus says, here's the work that gives me spiritual nourishment. Gathering from the harvest souls. And he's saying to his disciples, look, look, look around you. The harvest is plentiful. There are lost people everywhere. And God wants to use you as either a sower or a reaper or both. But God wants you involved in the good work of gathering in the harvest. That's why the last commandment Jesus gave us. It's called the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. And so, making disciples, sharing Jesus, leading people to faith in Christ, teaching them to grow so they can reach out to others, that is a good work. And we cannot claim to be people of good works if we are leaving out the greatest work. The work that Jesus said is is nourishing to his soul. And so let me tell you this. Should we help those in very practical ways around us that have needs? Yes, absolutely. But don't forget that greater even than people's physical needs are their spiritual needs. And, and, And if we simply are helping them physically without pointing them to Christ spiritually, we are simply making their life better and a better place to go to hell from. And so, good works is helping others. Good works comes when we, when we bear fruit. Good works comes when we make disciples. But here's the last thing. It's all for the glory of God. That's the motivation for good works. So how do you know that? Well, listen to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. He makes it very, very clear when Jesus says... In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, watch this, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That is the ultimate motivation for good works that God gets glory from our lives. And here's the reality. If you and I will help others, if you and I will bear Christian virtue through our lives by the power of the Spirit, if you and I will reach out to others with the gospel of Jesus Christ, our lives of good works can actually move people toward the kingdom so that he gets the glory he deserves. Amen? That's good works. Now again, that's not an exhaustive definition. That's the best I could come up with. So it's going to be good enough for you this week. Amen? 
What are good works? Helping others, bearing fruit, making disciples for the glory of God. John Wesley said it like this. Do all the good you can, in all the ways you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Right now, as we are involved in a building expansion, we've got to be, um, we've got to be uh, accurate about where we want you know, electrical plug-ins throughout the new facilities. We can plug in things and have the electricity we need at different spots. And, and, and electricians use conduit. The, the goal of conduit is get the electricity where it needs to go. And listen to me. God desires for you to be conduit. He wants to work through you to get His love and compassion to where it needs to go. Amen? You are the channel of blessing that God desires to use. And so, three realities. God has done something for us. God is doing something in us. And third, God desires to do something through us. But there's a word from Titus 2 I haven't emphasized yet that really is the foundation for all that I just said. And it's one word that will change your thanksgiving. It's one word that really will change your life of of status quo into a life of deep gratitude and passion for the Lord. And I want to show you that word back in Titus 2 verse 11 It's the starting point for all that God does in and for and through. Look what it says, verse 11. For the grace, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The foundation for what God does for and in and through is grace. The word grace means unmerited favor. It's God's favor on our lives that we don't deserve. It means, listen, undeserved blessing. If there's anything good in your life, listen to me, that comes from the hand of God, you don't deserve it, and neither do I. So if there's anything good, our only response is gratitude, God. It's all a gift of grace. For example, it's God's grace that you're saved. It says there in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That word has appeared speaks of God's initiative. Listen to me. When you weren't looking for God, God came looking for you. Before you were ever born, before you ever committed your first sin, Jesus Christ came to this earth and died on the cross for your sins. He initiated the work of salvation. And if you're saved, it's because God has drawn you to himself, showing you your need for a Savior. And God has enabled you to hear the gospel, the life-changing message of salvation. And so, it is grace that you are saved. It's unmerited favor. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. I read a story about a young man named Garrett. And Garrett was a junior at Virginia Tech. And in the article that he wrote, he said, I felt like everywhere I turned, God was following me around. He was living a, a life in college where he was pursuing drugs and drinking and um, dating relationships and just a lot of really ungodliness. He said, 
But at a Halloween party at Virginia Tech, he said a friend came up to him and just talked to him about Jesus. And so he kind of listened to the guy and kind of heard him out, and he went about his, his normal routine of life. But he just had a, this sneaking suspicion that his friend was telling him the truth. So he couldn't shake it. So he was still doing the same things, drugs and drinking and partying. But then he found himself doing crazy things like he would start to do drugs and then he would be convicted and he would flush him down the toilet. And then on a Sunday morning, he would get up and go to church. You know why? He just he started doing that. And uh, it was really bothering him. He was really struggling uh, with all of this. And... He talked to a friend named Adam, and Adam said, listen, man, you need to just get away. You're, you're stressed out, and so let's just, hey, let, let's go to Panama City Beach for spring break. That'll help you get your mind off all this stuff and, and get away, and, and we'll go have a good time. So Garrett and his friend Adam uh, jumped in the car and began to head for Panama City Beach for spring break. As they drove down the highway... Windows down and music blaring, about talking about life and school and girls, things of that nature. Garrett told Adam, hey Adam, I've been reading the Bible. And uh, it, it just seems like God is showing himself to me everywhere that I go. Garrett says, Adam, listen, but he probably thought that he was crazy. As they neared Panama City Beach, Garrett says, I noticed a plane flying overhead, pulling a banner behind it. As it drew closer, I could make out that it read, Jesus loves you, John 3.16. He pointed out to his friends, see? Everywhere I turn, God is there. Once they arrived at the hotel, they dropped their bags in the room, headed to the beach. They anchored their chairs in the sand and cracked open a pair of cold ones. They were going to enjoy their spring break. After a while, sitting there in the sand, drinking their beer, they noticed a small herd of students coming their way. A couple guys walked over to these two guys, gave them a pamphlet and said, God has a wonderful plan for your life, and began to share the gospel with them. They walked away. Garrett turned to Adam and said, see, everywhere I turn, they laughed about it and headed back to the room. That evening, they went to a club until closing time and And they made their way out to the curb to call a cab. They were in no condition to drive. And they were waiting for a cab to come pick them up. And all of a sudden, three vans pulled up with what he calls holy roller graffiti on the side. And it said on the side of these vans, God loves you. Believe the gospel. Jesus saves. The drivers got out. They offered free rides for anyone who needed it. Garrett says, we declined the ride. But as we walked away, I looked over and said, Adam, I'm not making this stuff up. I think God is following me. The next day, Garrett says it was a little rainy, so they laid low at the hotel. And at some point in the the night, as they were doing drugs, they found that they were really hungry. And so they went to the Waffle House. And they go into the Waffle House. It's late at night. And um, Garrett began to tell Adam, he said, I feel like God's making me feel bad for the way that I live. And I don't know what to do. As we scarfed down our waffles, Adam looked at Garrett and said, Bro, I think you need to stop doing the drugs. They're messing with your mind. Within minutes, listen, within minutes, the door of the Waffle House opened and a flood of about 30 loud and laughing people carrying Bibles came into the restaurant. They took seats all around us. One of the guys walked straight up to our table and said, Hey, my name is Shelby. Do you go to Virginia Tech? And Garrett said, Well, yeah, I do. They introduced themselves. And and the guy said, Haven't I seen you at my church in 
Blacksburg? And he said, well, yeah, I have visited there a few times, and it's possible that you saw me there. And then this young man explained that he was with a group called Campus Crusade for Christ, and he would like to meet up with me when we got back uh, to school so we could talk about God and the Bible. We exchanged information and headed off. After he was gone, Adam turned, stared me in the eyes, and said, Dude, God is following you around. The next day is what Garrett calls his line in the sand. He went to the beach before dusk. As he did, he saw a girl sitting by herself, staring off at the ocean. He wasn't sure why, but he felt like he was supposed to go up and talk to her. And so he walked up and said hello, asked how she was. If she had been in the water, she replied kindly, the water's a little too cold. So Garrett says, I said something stupid like, yeah, I'd have to have a case of beer before I got in there. She looked at me and said, you know, I don't know about that. But God has taught me that Jesus is all I need to be happy. It was a pretty serious Jesus juke, Garrett says, but it didn't surprise me. I told her I'd been thinking a lot about God and asked her to pray for me. As we walked, or as I walked toward the hotel, Garrett says, I saw a lady in a beach wheelchair and another guy my age signaling for me to come over to them. Garrett says, listen, I knew this was another divine setup, but I felt bad running from a woman in a wheelchair. So I made my way over to them. They began to talk, and this lady in the wheelchair said, Garrett, what do you know about Jesus? He says, I don't remember much else that she said except that God wanted me to know that I had to choose to either be for him or against him because I could not be both. That beach trip proved to be a true line in the sand for me. He was convinced God is pursuing me. And and he went back to Virginia Tech. He began to meet with the Christians that invited him, and he gave his life to Jesus. And the title of the article is, Followed by the God of Grace. Here's what I want you to understand. Whether you realize it or not, God is pursuing you. He's after you. And if you will stop long enough to consider that and open your heart to His prompting and His drawing and consider the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that Jesus died for you that Jesus rose from the dead and he will forgive you and transform you if you place your faith in him if you will do that you will understand that God is a God of grace who listen is initiating his work in your life grace we don't deserve that it's grace it's a free gift of God it's grace That he's done something for us. It's grace that he's doing something in us. You know, God could just forgive us and leave us alone, right? When I was nine and I embraced Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, the Lord could have said, hey, Wade, welcome. Glad you're in the family. I'll see you in heaven. Have a good life. But that's not at all what happened. God stepped into my life in a personal way. And he has never left me nor forsaken me. He's been with me every moment of my life, working on the details and intricacies and through circumstances to mold me and make me into the image of his son. I've heard it put like this. God loves us just like we are. But he loves us too much to leave us like we are. God's grace means... That if you are a follower of Jesus, he is still actively working in your life. You say, okay, wait, I got you there. 
It's God's grace that he's done something for us, doing something in us. But hey, it's my, it's my strength, it's my wisdom, it's my wherewithal, it's my zeal that accomplishes good works in my life, right? Wrong. If there's anything good coming from your life, or if there are any good works, guess what? It's a gift of grace. Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The reason there are good things happening through your life is because of God's grace working in your life. If you've ever made a good decision as a parent, it's grace. If you've done a good job in your workplace, it's grace. If you've been a good spouse, it's grace. If you've been faithful in your life to the Lord, it's grace. It's God actively working in and through your life. We can't do a single good work apart from God's grace. We need Him for every step of our journey. So here's the point that I want you to walk away with. God's works should should provoke worship. God's work for, in, and through us should provoke deep gratitude because it's all of grace. If you're struggling with gratitude this Thanksgiving season, if, if your heart's not stirred by songs like, My God is awesome, if that doesn't tr- crank your tractor, something's not quite right. And maybe it's a gratitude problem. Maybe it's because you've lost sight of that one word. Grace. Undeserved blessing. Unmerited favor. God is good. He's been good and we don't deserve any of it. God's works should provoke worship. God's provision should provoke praise. God's rescue should provoke response. God's salvation should provoke singing. And God's grace should provoke gratitude. 